0: Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now and preserve our lives according to your love so that we would obey the statutes and the commands that come from your mouth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue our series in the book of Joel. And Joel, the prophet Joel, has been concerned greatly with the the sin of the... Israelites and the judgment that has come upon the Israelites because of their lack of repentance and particularly we saw again and again the, the plague of locusts, that had, well, multiple plagues of locusts that had come through and devastated the land, uh, the fire had come as well and the issue that the prophet Joel had made to the people of Israel is that they needed to repent, they needed to rend their hearts before God. And then there's been this, in the last chapter, and last time we looked at this together, we saw the promises of God uh, being poured out upon the people of Israel that they, as they come in repentance, he would increase their abundance again, that they would increase their physical and spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessings were particularly given in the last part of the chapter for those who would call upon the name of the Lord. And now in chapter three, the prophet Joel takes a different turn and actually starts to speak to the nations. Previously he's been speaking to the people of Israel again and again, but now he is going to speak to the nations. And what is it that he promises to do for the nations? Well he promises to judge all nations. And we see that in verses 1 and 2, it says in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment against them. What is this valley of Jehoshaphat? Well, the word Jehoshaphat, if you follow your margins there in some of your Bibles, you'll see the little letter A. You go down to the margin and it says Jehoshaphat, which is a Hebrew name, means the Lord judges. What is it that the Lord promises to do for all nations? It's to bring them into the valley of judgment. That is that place where he will judge them. We see that in verse 12. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. But why is God calling the nations to his courtroom? Why is it that God wants to summon the nations to his courtroom? Well, it's to answer charges. And what are the charges that God has against the nations? Well, they have harmed his people. We see that in verse 2. Halfway through verse 2, it says, "There, There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. There's something about his inheritance, his people Israel, that the nations have done. And what is it that they have done? Well... They have stolen the people of God. They have stolen the people of God. It says there in the last part of verse 2, for they scattered my people among the nations. They kidnapped the people of God. They sold them as slaves. They took them and they scattered them among the nations. And what did they sell them for? Well, we read in verse 3 what they sold them for. It says in verse 3, they cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they might drink. What is the charge that God has against the nations? It is that they stole the people of God and they sold them, many of them, simply for sex and alcohol. That is what God has against the nations, that they came in, invaded his land, and took the people of God, kidnapped them, and sold them as slaves. And many of them were sold simply for sex and for alcohol. But what else does God have against the nations? Well, they didn't just take God's people they also took his land we see that in verse 2 it says for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land they took God's inheritance which he had given to the people of Israel and they claimed it for themselves it's not like they came in they raided they took the people of God and then they left no they settled in the area and took God's land for themselves they stole the land of God and what else does God have against them they didn't just take his people, they didn't just take his land, but they also took God's treasures. Where do we see this? Verse 5. Verse 5, it says, For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. They had sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem, we see in verse 6, to the Greeks, that they might send them far away from their homeland, but we also see that they took the land and they took the treasures that were in God's temples. They took what belonged to God, God's wealth. And what did they do with it? They carried it off to their temples, to the temples of their God. And so what charge does God have against the nations? Well, it's a charge of theft in multiple ways, that they have taken what does not belong to them. They've broken the Eighth Commandment, which is that you should not steal from those around you. But these people, these nations have come and they've stolen. They've stolen people, they've stolen land, and they've stolen the Lord's treasures. That is the charge that God has against them. So what does God say to them? Get ready for court. Get ready for court. Get ready for the valley of Jehoshaphat. Prepare for war against me because of what you have done. And we see that in verse 9. It says in verse 9, through the prophet Joel, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war. You've picked a fight with me. Prepare for war. I'm coming, and I'm coming to judge. And so you'd better be ready when I come to judge you. And so he tells them what they should do. What should they do, the nations? Rouse your warriors. Get your best fighting men, see there in verse 9. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. But not just the warriors. Who else are they supposed to rouse? Well, rouse even the weakest amongst you. Verse 10, it says, let the weakling say, I am strong. We see in verse 9 that they're to get the fighting men to draw near and attack. But they're also even, it comes down to the weakest amongst them are going to need, be needed. If you're gonna come and make war with God, if you're gonna come into my courtroom, you better make sure that you use every resource that's available, whether it be a powerful man, whether it even be the weakest amongst you, you need everybody to be involved. And you see this in great battles that take place, that it's not just the warriors that get involved. When they're down to the last man, they need the women and children to start getting involved and start attacking. And it's not just that, he says, get your resources. Make the most of everything you've got. If you're going to take me on, make sure that you get all your resources, not just people, but your resources that are available to you, and get ready for my battle. We see this in verse 10. Verse 10, Be- beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. You're going to have to take the things that you usually do, use to get food for yourselves, and you're going to have to start using them for war. You're going to have to make the most of everything. You haven't got enough swords for this fight. You're going to have to take things that you wouldn't normally use for fighting. You're going to have to start to use those for fighting as well. You're going to have to make your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. God says, get ready. Get people ready. Get your resources ready. And he says also, what else? Get ready quickly. Quickly. You need to get ready quickly. Verse 11 Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. You need to get your people sorted out, you need to get your resources, and you need to get ready quickly. And you need to come and have ready your accusations against me, what you're going to say to me as I judge you. And we see that in verse 4. What does he say to get ready there in verse 4? Now, what have you against me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? He says, if you're going to do this, if you're going to take my people, if you're going to take my land, if you're going to take my treasures, what is it that you have against me? What is it that you think gives you the right to do this? You'd better be ready for war. Come with your accusations, come with your resources, come with all your people and be ready for the valley of jehoshaphat where the lord will judge the nations and what will god do in that valley of jehoshaphat then he will judge the nations and how will he do it well we see the prophet joel says that he will have a harvest amongst them verse 13 swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe what does it mean that god will have a harvest in the valley of jehoshaphat well it means that he'll separate the good from the bad that's what you do at harvest time And that's what we see in in some of the parables in the New Testament where the Lord Jesus speaks. He talks about the harvest taking place where the wicked will be sorted from the good, where the righteous will be sorted from the unrighteous. This is what God is going to do. He's going to go through the nations because they are ripe for harvest. We see that in verse 13. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. There's wickedness here that needs to be harvested, that needs to be dealt with. And what will God do as He separates the wicked from the righteous? Well, He will roar and thunder His verdict against those who are guilty of theft. And we see that in verse in uh, verse 16. Verse 16, it says, "The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble. God will bring them in for judgment. He will separate the wicked. And then he will roar and thunder at them his verdict of guilty. Guilty of theft. Theft of my people, theft of my land, theft of my treasures. And then what will God do? He will repay the wicked for what they have done. He will repay them for what they have done. We see that in verse 4. He says, Now what have you against me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back... I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. God will repay the nations for their wickedness. He will enter into judgment with them, he will roar his guilty verdict at them, and then he will make them pay. And how will he make them pay? Well, he will return upon them what they have done. As they took from God, so God will take from them. How will he do that? Well, he will take their land and their treasures and sell them into slavery. We see that in verse 7 and 8. Punishment fits the crime. Verse 7 of chapter 3. See, I'm going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them. This is the Israelites. And I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. You have taken what does not belong to you. I will take from you. And I will destroy you. I will sell you into slavery. I will sell you into slavery, and I will trample on you. And that's what we see in verse 13, where we have this image of the harvester coming through, and we see the trampling of the grapes. Verse 13, Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. God will trample upon the nations because of their wickedness. Did God do this? Did God judge the nations that took advantage of the people of Israel? Yes, he did. Depends when you want to date the book of Joel. It's hard to date this book as to when in Israelite history it took place. Uh, But we do see nations that took advantage of Israel again and again are judged by God and destroyed themselves. The classic examples being the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the two great kingdoms that came down and took over the land of Israel. They were judged by God themselves. And cease to exist in their own right. The question for us, though, is: is there a message for us today from the book of Joel? Is this a message for us today? And the answer has to be yes, because this prophecy that has been spoken of here by the by the prophet Joel so many years ago is still being fulfilled. It's the thing we have to understand with the prophets always that there's a, a Closer fulfillment, but then there's future fulfillments that take place. Again and again through history, that there's other fulfillments and of course leading to the great fulfillment that comes and we read so much about in the book of Revelation. But how is this still being fulfilled today? Well, the nations are still exceedingly wicked. All nations on this earth are still wicked. How so? They're all guilty of theft. All people of all nations, they're all guilty of theft. How so? Well... Nations still today, they steal people, they take advantage of the weak around them and use them for what? For their own pleasures often. And what might that be? The same thing that we see back here in the time of Israel, sex and alcohol, sex and alcohol. Many of the pleasures that people indulge in at the advantage that they've taken from other people is for sex and alcohol. How do we see this? Even in a nation like ours, and we see it in other nations, we see where welfare money is given to people to look after children that are in their care and it's ploughed into alcohol instead of the lives that it was given for. It's a very sad truth that we see as money is given to people to care for children that instead it is used for alcohol. And how do we see theft in order for sex? In a nation like ours, or any of the nations of the earth, or many of the Western nations of the earth, well, a lot of pornography is made by enslaving women. Women are not choosing to do it, they're instead being forced to make the pornography that is watched by others. And how else do we see that sex takes advantage of others? Well, when we consider that many babies are aborted, killed in the womb, so that people can have the sexual freedom that they want, and many children conceived, no lo- no, they do not see the light of day because they're taken advantage of in the name of sex. And so those who are guilty of watching pornography are guilty of theft of the lives of others. They may not have made the pornography, but by participating in that industry, they're guilty of enslaving others and taking the lives of others even for their own sexual pleasure what else are people guilty of today well stealing land not just stealing people's lives but stealing land particularly in national conflicts we see this as a nation comes into another nation and takes over that land they steal the land of others and what else do we see today how the nations are guilty in the way that the prophet joel speaks of theft well people take god's treasures for their own gods People take God's treasures for their own gods. How does this happen? Well, God owns everything. We talk about my money, but really it's not your money, it's God's money, God's wealth that you own, and you're simply a steward of it, and you're expected to use it wisely. But many people use it for their own idols. Calvin says that we, our hearts are idol factories. You think you don't have idols because you don't have a little Buddha on your shelf. But we are idol factories. We have idols that we give the Lord's money to all the time. The nations are guilty of theft. Theft of people, theft of land, theft of the Lord's treasures. But you may say, surely not I, surely not I. But sadly, though we may not be as wicked as the people of so long ago that invaded the land of Israel, we are guilty too. Everyone is ultimately guilty of theft. If not directly, at least indirectly. How's that? By our nations. Our nations represent us. And as they are guilty of stealing from others, we are culpable along with our nation. It's a sad truth, but it goes right back to Adam and Eve. As Adam and Eve took what did not belong to them, we are guilty of that too. And it goes all the way down from whoever we're descended through, not just our more recent descendants, but whatever nation we have been a part of, that our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers all the way back, we are culpable along with them because of our national identity. And that's what we see being taught here, that it's nations that are being judged. Individuals but also whole nations are culpable for what, their national identity does and so we are all guilty and so what does Joel say to us today what does he say to the nations today well he says get ready for court get ready for court prepare for war prepare for Armageddon the great day of the Lord how how should we prepare for court does Joel say well get your accusations ready Verse 4, now what have you against me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. Get your accusations ready. What else? Get your warriors ready. Get your weak people ready, as we saw in verse 9 and 10. And also get your resources ready. Take things that you would normally use for providing food for yourself and use them to make ready for war with me. You've picked a battle with me and get ready quickly. Get ready quickly. Why? Because the court date is near. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Get ready quickly because the day of the Lord is near. Now, do people do this? Do people follow the The words of Joel, in one sense, they may not realise it, but are they getting ready for the day of battle, for the day of the Lord, for the day where the Valley of Jehoshaphat will host, the multitudes upon multitudes? Yes, people spend a lifetime warring against God, getting ready for that last day. How? Well, they make their accusations and seek to justify them over their lives. Why God should not be respected, why God should not even be believed in. People have their accusations. What do people say? Well, there can't be a God because he hasn't given me the pleasures that I want. And what else do they like to say? What's the other accusation that they make against God? There can't be a God because he has given me so much pain and suffering. Or people that I know. I look on the television set and I see the pain and suffering of people. So therefore, I do not need to respect God. I can take what he gives and I can use it for my own self rather than for his glory, which is what it's given for. I can steal from others and use it for myself because God is a God who does not give me my pleasures, he does not give me what I want, and he gives me instead pain and suffering. And so therefore, what are they doing? They're getting their arguments ready against God. And they use others to support this. They get the strongest atheist to support their case they even get the weakest of atheists to support their case the most foolish of people the person who doesn't really know any real arguments against god but just says oh yeah i don't believe there is a god oh yes 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 you come you join my cause that supports my case against god and they take resources and plow them into their arguments to their case against god they take valuable resources and put them into books and movies and conferences that will affirm their case against god and of course people even take resources and plow them into other religions religions that are better than christianity religions that are better than the one that worships the god of the bible and they plow their resources the treasures that god has given their valuable resources they plow them into religions that are hostile to god hostile to him So God says, go on and get ready. And then what will I do? He says to the nations today, I will sit and judge you. I will sit and judge you. How? I will harvest mankind. I will separate the good from the bad. And then what will I do? I will roar and thunder my verdict against you, my guilty verdict against you. You are guilty of theft. That's what God says to the nations today. You're guilty of theft. And one day I will roar and thunder that guilty verdict upon you. And then what will I do? Joel says that God will repay on their own heads what they have done. And we see that in verse 4. Now what have you against me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. And so what will God do? You have taken from him, he will take from you, is what God says to the nations today, to all people. If you've taken from me, I will take from you. I will take your land I will take your possessions and I will take you yourself and I will sell you into a land far away. And what is that land? It is hell, the prison of hell. That's where you will go. You will have nothing and even what you do have, your very self, will be sent to hell and you'll be trampled in hell eternally. You'll be trampled in hell eternally. Is this true though? Is it really true? We're looking at an obscure book of the Bible. Surely it's not true, it doesn't apply to today. But as I've said, all the prophecies in the Old Testament they have current fulfillments, but then there's future fulfillments that take place. And we've looked at the book of Revelation, we see the things that are spoken of in the book of Joel, spoken about the future and the Armageddon that is coming. For example, look with me at um, Revelation chapter 20. Turn with me to the almost the end of your Bibles. Page 1230. Page 1230. And we'll read from verse 7 of Revelation chapter 20, where we see the great and terrible day of the Lord and the Valley of Jehoshaphat being spoken of here in Revelation chapter 20. Chapter 20 of Revelation, page 1230, reading from verse 7, where we read, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Here people are getting ready for war. Ready for war, ready for war with God. But what happens at the end of verse 9? But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who had received them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of fire, life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here we see what was prophesied in Joel happening at the end, where the nations gather to battle with God. They make ready, they beat their plowshares into swords and their pruning hawks into spears. And then what happens? Fire comes from God and burns them up as they gather to make war on Him. It's almost laughable. The way that they gather an immense multitude to make war with God and it just ends like that. I mean, that's what it even says in Joel, um, Sorry, Psalm 2, the passage that we opened the service with, that the Lord on high laughs as people gather to make war with him. What did we read in chapter 2 of Psalms? Verse 1, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. They're saying, let's break the chains that the Lord has upon us and throw off his fetters. And what's God's response? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger. And terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we see that there is an Armageddon, that the prophecy of Joel still stands, that all the nations will pass through the valley of Jehoshaphat. They will be judged by God. So what hope is there for anyone? As I said before, we're all thieves. We've all taken what doesn't belong to us and we're all part of nations that have taken what didn't belong to them. We're all thieves. I defy anyone in this room to say that they've never wronged anyone else. They've never taken what does not belong to them for their pleasures or they're not part of a nation that has taken what does not belong to them and used it for idolatry. So what hope is there? Well, there is hope in Joel chapter 3. There is hope that is given. Because the Lord promises that he will provide a stronghold. He will provide a stronghold and a refuge for his people. Look with, back with me at Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, verse 16. It says, The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and sky will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. There is hope given for God's people there's a stronghold now how does god have a stronghold for people who have sinned against him well it's not by winking at sin by saying that it doesn't really matter because then of course god's justice would be at stake he can't just say it's okay because he's meant to be a just god who punishes those who take what does not belong to them who break the eighth commandment so what has god done Well, he imputed the very great wickedness of his people. He imputed it upon his son. He took it from his people and put it upon his son. And then what did he do? He put his son into court. What has God done in the past? He set a court date to judge his son, to judge Jesus Christ, that Jesus would enter the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision, at a particular time in history. And then what did God do when his son entered into that courtroom? God harvested him. God swung his sickle and declared that he was wicked in his eyes because of the sin that had been imputed to him. Not because of his own sin, because Jesus never sinned, but because of the sin that had been imputed to him from his people. God saw Jesus as ripe in wickedness and swung his sickle. And then what did God do? He roared and thundered at his own son. Thundered the guilty verdict upon him because of the guilt of his people. And then what did God do? What does God do when he declares someone guilty? He repays for that sin. And that's what God did. God repaid our sin upon Jesus. How? As we took from God, he took from Jesus. How? He stripped Jesus of all he had. He sold him for 30 pieces of silver, as we heard from Matthew's Gospel before. Jesus was sold into slavery, sold to go to the hell at the cross. And what happened to Jesus at the cross? He was trampled. He was trampled as one who was considered guilty of sinning against the Lord, of taking what did not belong to him. Even though he had never done that, he had always upheld God's laws. And so the pains of hell were poured out upon him as he was taken outside the camp and destroyed by God at the cross. And so why did God do all that? Well, it was to make a refuge for those who trust in God as his people. He is the refuge and the stronghold. What does it say in verse 16? But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. And who is Jesus? He is the Lord, incarnate. He is the stronghold. He is the refuge. So how is it possible for him to be a refuge for us today, for us who have stolen from our fellow man and from God himself? Well, it's by trusting in him. If we trust in Christ Jesus and his death, we are forgiven. Why? Because the penalty has been taken for our sin the harvest has happened the judgment has happened we've already passed through the valley of jehoshaphat in one sense with christ jesus the roaring has taken place that we deserve the thundering that we deserve from god the repayment the slavery the trampling in the wine press of god has already taken place because christ has been trampled on our behalf the payment has been made in full And so we who turn from our sin and trust in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're saved from God's courtroom. We're saved from the valley of Jehoshaphat. So the question for you this morning is, are you secure in the refuge and stronghold of Christ Jesus? If the answer is no, what should you realise? You should realise that God has laid criminal charges against you. Criminal charges, at a bare minimum of theft, but many other charges are laid against you. And so what has God done? God has set a court date for you. There's a court date that God has set for you with the multitudes, the multitudes in the valley of decision, as we see in the prophet Joel. Verse 14 applies to you. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. And that date is soon. That date is soon. He's assigned you a court date. So what should you do? You should realise that God has set a date for you to go to court. He has laid charges against you. What should you do? Well, Jesus actually gives good advice in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, he says, "'Settle matters quickly with your adversary "'who is taking you to court. "'Do it while you are still with him on the way, "'or he may hand you over to the judge, "'and the judge may hand you over to the officer, "'and you may be thrown into prison.'" Now, he's talking about our relations with others around us, generally speaking. But that's good advice when you consider what God is doing with you. That he is your adversary and he is taking you to court. So what should you do? You should take Christ's advice and settle the matter before you get to court. Settle with God before you get to court. Otherwise, he may hand you over to the officer and the officer will throw you into prison for all of eternity. Now, how do you settle with God? How do you settle with God? Well, it's not by getting your arguments ready, your accusations against God. You'll be laughed out of court if you do. What will God do? As you bring your charges against God for all the things that he's done against you, he will bring before you again and again and again all the things that you've done to those around you and the things that you did to him, and you'll be laughed out of court. So what should you do? You should settle with God. How? by offering Christ's body and blood on your behalf, trusting that Jesus died in your place, that he was trampled at the cross so that the payment that you owe for your sin has already been handed over to uh, to God through Christ Jesus. That's the only way to settle with God. It's not by your works, not by your arguments. It's by Christ alone. If you trust in Christ Jesus, his body and blood, then you are settled with God and so the valley of Jehoshaphat holds no fear to you and if that is you if you have trusted in Christ Jesus what should you do well you should rejoice oh the joy of knowing that the things that are spoken of in Joel chapter 3 do not apply to those who have trusted in Christ Jesus because they're not part of all nations anymore they're part of God's nation in Christ Jesus. They are in that refuge, they are in that stronghold, the joy that should fill our hearts to know that we were once part of the other nations and we deserve to be trampled. We deserve to have God roar at us. We deserve to be trampled in hell for all eternity. And so what else should we do? We should be rejoicing but also thanking God. Thanking God by the power of the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation that we now have in Christ Jesus. The Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision. It's not a scary prospect anymore for those who have settled with God through Christ Jesus because we know that we will pass through that court, we'll pass through the valley and we'll pass into eternal life, into the heavenly places where we do not deserve to be but because of Christ we get to go there. And so we rejoice and we thank God For his mercy his kindness to thieves like us because he gave his life he gave christ's life for us in exchange for thieves so that we could live with him in the heavenly places for all eternity let's come to god in prayer let's speak to him now heavenly father we praise you as the lord of justice who does not let thieves go unpunished and we confess though that we are guilty of theft We've taken what belongs to our fellow men and what belongs to you and used it for the idols of our hearts. But Lord, we thank you for judging your son for our theft instead of judging us who believe. We ask that you would help us to rejoice and thank you for the salvation that we have in his name, that he is our refuge, he is our stronghold from the judgement that is to come. But Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who does not believe, may they fear the valley of Jehoshaphat, may they fear the court date that has been assigned to them and settle matters with you now quickly, by faith, before it is too late. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.